Thanks for tuning in to the first episode of The Minds of Madness. You may notice this episode is titled 1 and 2. That's because when I first published it, it was two episodes. Back in 2016, I had a lot to learn about podcasting, and I gotta tell you, this show has evolved significantly. And since a lot of people start listening to a show by going to the first episode, we thought it would be a good idea to give you a better representation of the kind of shows we produce today. So if you enjoy our show after listening to this, I recommend going to the latest episode and start working your way back. That way you might forgive our learning curve on some of the earlier episodes. Also, I wanted to note, since we first published our two episodes, we got to know Jody and we've interviewed him a few times. So you may notice the sound quality differs a bit while he's talking. And with that said, thank you for listening to The Minds of Madness. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. On March 16, 1984, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, a man named Gary Plochet did something completely out of character. The father of four, best described as a genuine all-American dad, completely shocked a community when he publicly committed an unimaginable act. But what could cause a man, a father of this caliber, to suddenly snap? Join me now as we delve into the story of Gary Plochet, an active and supportive father who did the unthinkable. As we take a closer look into this complicated case, we'll try to discover just what causes ordinary people to do unthinkable things. Gary was a hard-working middle-class man who always provided for his family, even making time to coach his son's Little League baseball team. But one day, this harmless, loving man suddenly cracked. In order to understand just what exactly led him to this moment, you need to see the full picture, the circumstances and series of events that led up to that fateful moment. Gary and his wife, June, were loving parents who raised their four children in the capital city of Louisiana, Baton Rouge, a city located on the banks of the Mississippi River, with a population of roughly 220,000 people back in the 80s. At the time, roughly 38% of households were living below the poverty line, making it extremely difficult for many single-income families to make ends meet. But Gary Plochet was a father, not only determined to provide for his family, he wanted them to have as many opportunities as possible. So when his son Jody developed a love for sports, Gary nurtured that interest to the best of his ability. 
making sure it was possible for him to join various sports teams, including football and baseball. While Jody was hip-deep playing every sport imaginable, his younger brother Mikey had yet to be enrolled in anything. That is, until a flyer handed out at the boys' school was brought home, advertising martial arts lessons. And my little brother, he wasn't involved in any sports. So my mother was like, well, let's put Mikey in karate along with a friend of ours. And then she was like, well, Bubba and Jody, Bubba's my older brother, and Jody can also take it. Well, we went to like the first session and everything went fine. Then we went to the second session and the instructor never showed up. So it turned out that, you know, the guy just kind of took the money and, and split. But it was done through this organization who then turned our names over to Jeff Doucette. Jeff Doucette was 24 years old when he took over the martial arts school. With not much else going on in his life, Jeff lived and breathed his job at the school. Literally, it's where he lived. And his dedication to teaching martial arts? Well, it went far beyond just instructing students. Jeff quickly became like an older brother to the kids and really seemed to believe in them. So much so, he asked if Jody and his brothers could join his elite fighting team, a team that would have the opportunity to travel and compete against other martial arts teams. Additional benefits of joining the team included being invited out for movie nights. Jody recalls how his mother reacted to the invitation. My mother, being kind of paranoid, called her brother who worked at the sheriff's department and said, hey, can you run a background check on this guy, Jeff Doucette? He wants to take my kids to the movies and I don't want to let my kids go to with just anybody. Apparently, my uncle checked and said, no, he's fine. All he has is you know, a couple speeding tickets or something like that. Along with taking the boys out to the movies, Jeff also started giving them rides home. Jody's brother Mikey recalled how fun it was to hang out with Jeff. They thought he was awesome. The boys trusted Jeff, and very early on, so did their parents. He was spending quality time with their boys, mentoring them, helping them out by giving the boys rides home. What wasn't there to like about this guy? Soon the Plochet family began to open up their home to Jeff, inviting him over for family meals, and even letting him shower at their home. In essence, Jeff quickly became an extension of their family. The Plochets had no way of knowing that Jeff Doucette had sinister intentions. Not only had he been grooming Jody, he'd been priming their entire family for what he had planned. The Plochets cared so much about Jeff, Jody recalls one Sunday evening that brought his father to tears. I remember one time my dad felt so bad for him because we were going to eat family dinner and my dad started crying and he's like, he's so pitiful. And I'm like, what? And he goes, he just, he doesn't have anybody. So my dad picked him up, brought him home, let him shower, gave him a fresh shirt to wear and then took him to my grandparents' house. As Jeff spent more and more time with the boys, Gary and June's marriage began falling apart, eventually separating by the summer of 1983. As Gary and June focused on adjusting to living apart, the boys couldn't help but welcomed the extra time Jeff was investing in them. By that time, Jeff had been regularly taking Jody away for tournaments. He also started hanging around the Plochet house more, lavishing attention on the family, especially Jody. 
But in Gary's mind, he thought Jeff was there for June. He suspected Jeff was trying to make a solid effort of replacing him as the man of the house, which was only confirmed in his mind when Jeff started antagonizing him by making things difficult for him at work. Jeff, he'd call his work and say that, you know, he was driving drunk and, and he'd disguise his voice and Jeff was driving him crazy. On top of it all, Gary was struggling with a drinking problem. Emotionally and mentally, everything happening in his life was a lot to bear and he was beginning to unravel. On the morning of February 19, 1984, Jeff arrived at the Plochet's doorstep, asking to take Jody on some errands and to borrow June's car. He told her the plan was to help out his brother by picking up a carpet he was installing. He said he'd be back with Jody in 15 minutes, but 15 minutes came and went, and Jody didn't return home. 15 minutes soon turned into an hour and an hour turned into a full day, and still, no word from Jody. Although Jeff had become a trusted friend of the family, June couldn't help but feel concerned. Where were they, and why hadn't they called? June soon began phoning around and managed to track down Jeff's mother's phone number, who lived three hours away in Port Arthur, Texas. To her surprise, Jeff's mother confirmed Jeff was there with Jody, and they were going to be spending the night. She told June he'd drop him off the following day. But in reality, Jeff had other plans. That Monday, Jeff spent trying to gather money to buy our bus tickets to California. And I think he went with his mother to get like a fake ID, like his brother's birth certificate. So when he got to California, he could get a driver's license under his brother's name because he was on the run. And the mother helped out with that. But the mother honestly didn't know that he was faking me to California. Jeff told both his mother and Jody he was on the run from a guy he owed $15,000 to, which seemed to legitimize his reasons for fleeing to California. And as far as Jeff's mother knew, he fully intended on dropping off Jody back at his home before heading out on his road trip, but he never did. So that next Tuesday, we got on a bus from Orange, Texas, headed to Los Angeles, California. And that Tuesday as well, my mother and uh, people with the Baton Rouge Sheriff's Department went to Port Arthur, Texas to look for me and arrest Jeff. Jody describes how he felt when they boarded the bus to California. I was what's you know known as a compliant victim and I was just I was just there. That was probably the closest I ever came to telling because I didn't I didn't want to go, but I didn't I wasn't scared because I didn't think he was gonna hurt me. I was just kind of a you know abused child stuck in a situation where I felt helpless. After a week of disappearing, Jeff let Jody call home to let his mother know he was alright, but he wouldn't let him disclose their exact location. As the days wore on, and Jeff started running out of money, he began making calls more regularly to June, threatening if she didn't meet him in New York and bring money, she'd never see her son alive again. Jody believed Jeff had mentioned New York just to throw his mom off the trail. Eventually, authorities made the decision to tap June's phone in case Jeff or Jody called back again. 
Ten days after going missing, Jeff let Jody call home again, and within minutes, FBI were able to trace the call and discover their location. Room 38 of a small hotel in Anaheim, California, just blocks from Disneyland. But in the midst of Jeff being arrested, Jody's family was still confused why the man they once trusted had kidnapped their son to begin with. Jody never feared Jeff's intentions were to keep him from his family forever. He believed they were just going on a vacation to Disneyland. No one will ever know how long Jeff intended on keeping Jody or whether he planned on returning him back home at all. He did, however, alter both of their appearances, with Jeff shaving off his beard entirely and dyeing Jody's hair from blonde to black. He didn't have a plan, so he really didn't tell me much like, oh, you know, we'll, we'll be out there. He just said that, you know, you're my son. I'm going to tell people you're my son. Instead of running errands and returning Jody home in 15 minutes like he promised, he instead put him on a bus and crossed over four states, traveling over 1,600 miles. Following Doucette's arrest, Jody was taken to a nearby hospital to be examined for any injuries, including whether he'd been sexually assaulted. A few days later, he was flown back to Louisiana, where he was greeted by his relieved family. March 1st, an emotional family reunion at New Orleans International Airport. Gary, June, meet Jody after his unexpected California visit. How do y'all feel now? Fantastic. Fantastic. He <laughs> looks good. I no, love that he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, he doesn't at all. What do you think about this whole thing? I don't know. Jody denied any sexual contact with Jeff, but his examination report would tell a different story. On March 13, 1984, 12 days after Jody's return, the Federal Bureau of Investigation received the findings from Jody's exam. That's when the hospital report came back that had positive for, let's just say, DNA inside my body, positive proof that Jeff had sex with me. Jody's parents were in absolute shock. Granted, they found it highly unusual that the man they'd grown to love and trust had kidnapped their son. But this? According to Jody, it all began in March 1983 with a driving lesson in Doucette's Nissan. The grooming had started before I realized it. The time I realized that, okay, this something's not right, was when he let me sit in his lap and drive the car, and he put his hands in my lap. That time, I realized it, but he had already kind of set the ball in motion because he had a stretch in, and he would touch between our legs. Okay, you know, it's tight right here, okay. So he was making, he was trying to normalize, you know, touching an intimate spot. He was testing my boundaries there, so the grooming had begun. Sadly, the situation with Doucette only got worse for Jody. Well, we were on a karate trip in Houston, Texas. He said, I'm going to suck your tonight. And I'm like, why? I don't know why. And then once, it was an old John Wayne movie was on the TV. He turned that TV off. All the kids were sleeping. And he just, he just went underneath the covers. And he did that for about a month. And then after that, that's when he's like, all right, now I'm going to you. He would perform oral sex on me, and then he'd have sex with me. And he did that almost every day, sometimes two times a day. 
family members had tried to warn Gary Plochet that something seemed off about Jody's relationship with Jeff. There was an incident in the summer of 1983 where I had a karate tournament in Fort Worth, Texas, and my, well, I was going to stay with my uncle in Dallas, and my karate teacher dropped us off, and uh, my karate teacher gave me a kiss on the lip that upset my uncle. And he told my dad, he said, look, there's something not right with this relationship. And my dad, who knew Jeff, who thought Jeff was a good guy, was like, oh, no, you just got to get to know him. He would never do anything bad. You know, he's, he's a great guy. Whether it was on the road, at competitions, or at the martial arts school, Jody couldn't seem to be able to escape Doucette's daily abuse. I wanted him out of my life. I wanted him to stop. I didn't hate him because he was a fun guy for the most part. It was just, you know, the, the sexual stuff, it was over and done with quick, but we're going to the movies, we're still going on karate trips. I just didn't want to be a, yeah, I didn't want to be someone's sex toy. Jeff would often stop practices, sending the rest of the kids off to the convenience store for snacks while keeping Jody behind. In exchange for Jody's silence was the promise of lavish attention and friendship with a grown man who could take him places he'd never seen before. The abuser, they don't use the, the threats. That's, that's just like what you see in the movies. That's not, I mean, that's not what really happens in real life. They use the affection, they use the attention, they use the goods, the gifts, the presents. They use basically the affection to keep the kid from telling. If they come out and threaten you right away, then you might just say, hey, Jeff threatened me, but they use, they use all that. So by the time they start molesting you, I mean, you've already made an, we'll say an emotional connection, but I mean, you, you look at this person as someone who is kind and this, you know, wonderful person. It wasn't like, I like the abuse. I like all the fun things we did. Like I said, even when I was kidnapped, we still spent the day at Disneyland. These child predators, they have to be good at what they do. After hearing his son had been molested by Jeff for close to a year, Gary's anger towards the man became unbearable. The thought of his precious son being abused by a loyal friend to the entire family was incomprehensible. Meanwhile, back in California, Baton Rouge sheriffs Mike Burnett and Bud Connor were preparing to escort Doucette back to Louisiana to stand trial. On the trip back, Sheriff Barnett was shocked to hear Jeff confess to molesting other children besides Jody. So many, Doucette couldn't even recount the number. According to Barnett, he was a classic pedophile who seek out situations where they can be closely involved with kids. They're different from rapists who hate their victims in that they love their victims. It was clear to the Baton Rouge sheriffs they'd be able to build a successful case against Doucette, putting him away for the rest of his life. As sheriffs flew back with Jeff Doucette, Gary Plochet sat at a local restaurant, trying to come to terms with everything he'd learned since his son was returned home safely. My dad was having lunch at this uh, local restaurant about a quarter mile up the road from the news station, and one of the news directors asked my dad, when are they bringing your boy back when are they bringing jeff back and and my dad's like i think he's back already you know they, they won't tell me and he goes no he's not back he goes i think he's coming in tonight so he placed a call to the news station found out the flight number the time and told my dad that's how my dad knew when he was coming back someone from the news station told my father with that gary was off to the airport pacing about the lobby 
checking flight times. He then called up a friend from a payphone inside the airport, sharing his apparent plans. Just then, sheriffs walked a handcuffed Doucette by Gary, who was still on the phone, wearing a baseball cap and sunglasses. Gary turned from the payphone towards Jeff Doucette and pointed a gun directly towards him. He then shot Jeff at point-blank range in the head. Our lead story tonight, a Baton Rouge man arrested for the recent kidnapping of a 10-year-old boy has just been gunned down as detectives brought him back from California. Coincidentally, there was a news team there to catch it all on camera. He has been actually arrested and booked with secondary murder. The possible charges, of course, are secondary murder, uh, manslaughter, and then there's always that other uh, designation, which is justifiable homicide. Jody describes hearing the news about what had happened. I woke up the next morning and my grandparents just had this look of horror on their face. And they, were, they weren't saying much. They were just saying, get in the car, we're going back to Baton Rouge. My initial thought was that something had happened to daddy, like he had gotten in a wreck or something. And maybe was in the hospital or dead. And then my mother came with my uncle to my grandparents' house and told us, like, last night, daddy shot Jeff. Jeff Doucette died of his injuries the following day and Gary was facing second-degree murder charges. Following the trial, Gary was sentenced to five years probation and 300 hours of community service. At the time of the shooting, Gary would later explain to psychologists that he heard voices in his head telling him he needed to kill Jeff or he'd continue harming his son. Gary was dubbed a hero by many, a dealer of Southern justice, he never for a second regretted his actions. In fact, he was quoted saying, if given the opportunity, he'd dig Jeff up and shoot him again. At the time, Jody was upset his father had fatally shot Jeff, but now believes his actions may have helped with his healing. At the time, I was mad at Daddy because, one, I didn't want Jeff killed because, again, when you're 11 years old, you know, you think he's your buddy. Now I think it's actually probably made the difference in my mental health, maybe. Not that I advocate going out and killing someone who does something bad to your child, but who knows how things would have turned out differently. And now, since Daddy didn't go to jail, I think that also made a big difference. So there was a lot of things that happened with the community support that I got to, you know, kind of attribute to my family, my friends, the community being supportive of me to, to help me to where I'm at now. Jody's mother was also deeply affected by what had happened to her son. You know, I mean, it's affected her probably more than me because, you know, I was her child, I was her baby. And to think that, you know, she's the one that put us in karate, you know, they they didn't think that people like that really existed. I mean, they knew it, but they didn't think it would happen. You know, one of those, oh, we didn't think it could happen to us. In an interview with the Washington Post, Gary Plochet's defense lawyer was quoted saying, I've had half a dozen parents call me with similar stories. One had a child in the martial arts class who started acting strange, so they pulled him out. As an adult, Jody still hears from others abused by Jeff Doucette. A couple weeks ago, someone that I went to high school with told me that her child's father was also abused by Jeff, and I asked what his name was, and, and that was another kid that I knew that Jeff had abused because his dad and my dad were friends. 
In 2014, at the age of 68, Gary Plochet suffered a stroke and passed away. Jody explained how Jeff's abuse and control had affected the father and son relationship when he was a child. When Jeff had me under control, he was very controlling. He was very jealous of my dad, so he wouldn't want me to spend time with my dad. Every other weekend, we got to a lake, and if my dad be like, Jody, come ride with me to the store, and if it got back to Jeff and I rode with my dad, Jeff would be like, oh, you love him more than me. So I was kind of distant with my dad when Jeff was around. And after the shooting, I was, I was upset with my father, and they just basically gave me some space. I eventually came around, and, and I don't want to say forgave him, but more or less understood what drove him to do what he did. And so by the time I was an adult, me and my dad had a great relationship. Jeff had been successful at working his way into the hearts of the entire Plochet family to the point he was able to blind Jody's parents as to what was really happening behind the scenes. Jody now shares some of the warning signs his parents weren't aware of at the time. There were some signs, like, I mean, for example, I, like I mentioned, I was in a, uh, played football, basketball, and baseball, and I was on the all-star, you know, little league basketball team, and I quit all of that for karate because Jeff pretty much made me. And, you know, I told him, oh, no, that's what I wanted to do, but I, I didn't really. So if you look at, like, you know, changes in attitudes and behaviors, obviously physical signs. Jody explained one of the key factors that helped him with his recovery. When I was 18 years old, I went with my dad to New York City and filmed an episode of a Geraldo Rivera talk show. All right, that was in April. The show didn't air until I turned 19 in June. A couple weeks after that show aired, I got a call from Mike Burnett from the Sheriff Baton Rouge Sheriff's Department. He's the guy in the video that yells, why, Gary, why, and grabs my father. He called me up and he said, I want you to know this because it's going to be in the newspaper tomorrow, but we just arrested this pastor who had been molesting these two kids. And one of the kids came out after seeing your story on the Geraldo show. And then that's when I realized that I could make a difference and I could take something that was negative and turn it into positive and try to help others. Jody explained some of the reasons many survivors of sexual abuse have a difficult time recovering. I know people who have lost children who are mentally healthier than people who are sexually abused because grieving's allowed when you lose someone. It's almost like the language is you're not allowed to heal. You're, you hear people go, oh, that, that child's gonna be scarred for life. Irreparable harm has been done to this child. Those type of words and that language pisses me off because that is BS. Now, they have the potential to be scored for life if they don't get the proper support. I have a friend of mine, she's got mental health problems and I'll tell you why. Because when she was 12 or 13 years old, she went to her mother and she said, stepdad is molesting me. And you know what the mother said? You're a liar and sent her to go live with her dad. That's not the proper support. Jody's been working in the field of violence prevention since 1995, speaking all over the U.S. about his experiences, dispelling false information about child predators while bringing support and healing to others. He also released his book titled Why Gary Why, which shares his experiences and informs parents on what they can do to protect their children. I think the most important thing that, that, that should kind of raise awareness in a parent is if there's an adult that's showing a lot of special interest in one of your particular children or a couple of your children, because in order for the abuse to take place, the adult has to get the child alone. And I mentioned in the book, I was like, if a somebody wants to spend more time with your kids than you do, 
that's a huge red flag. That's not just a flag, it's a rocket ship. So I just think, you know, limiting whoever has access to your children is very important. Not to let them spend too much time with uh, individuals. You can't, you know, lock them away in a bubble forever. But I think it's important also to have the discussion and talk to your children about their body and touch and safety and that kind of thing. To anyone that might have experienced sexual abuse as a child, Jody shared an important message. Realize that you were not someone who did something bad. And also, you got one life to live. Don't ruin it over somebody else's bad actions. Life is too short. And I tell people all the time, I don't even consider my childhood bad. I mean, I had a bad year, but even in that bad year, okay, even in that year that Jeff was molesting me, I met my best friend in middle school. I had life experiences, you know, I traveled to California that most people don't get at that young age. Then I was on the, and then the national attention. So I could have spiraled into oblivion, but you know, life's too short. I'm going to live it to the fullest. I started writing in 1993 because several years later in 2017, when I decided to you know, finish writing the book, I had a lot of information that I'd written down that I wouldn't have probably been able to recall this many years later. In February of 2017, I hired a book writing company to help me complete the project. And so we worked on that for about probably nine to 10 months uh, to a year and eventually found a publisher. And I'm very pleased with the final product. It's got a lot of good information for survivors, for parents, especially parents, on how to reduce the risk of your child being victimized. And also, if your child is victimized, how to respond. So there's a lot of good information. If, if anyone has any questions or want to reach out for a signed copy of the book, then hit me up and, and we'll make it happen. If you'd like to find out more about Jody or buy his book, you can find links in the episode notes. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G E with pen of my madness. I can feel the madness. Someone's standing at my door. I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run. I can feel the madness. Someone's standing at my door. I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run.